This recording is a personal reading of the book, Christianity Through the Centuries, A History of the Christian Church. I'm reading this out loud um, for your personal enrichment, that you would have a firmer grasp of church history. I think for the most part, Christians are rather ignorant when it comes to church history, and I think this book will serve as a blessing to you as it has been a blessing to me already. Um, this recording is not to be redistributed or re-recorded, um, and this is a non-profit reading of this, this book. So please keep that in mind as we proceed with chapter 5 today. The Spread of Christianity in the Empire to 100 AD. Chapter 5. The Books and the Parchments. The New Testament is not an isolated mountain peak, of religious literature. It is rather the highest peak of a mountain range of religious literature produced by the early church. Its basic literary forms, gospels, acts, epistles, and apocalypse, became the models on which the early fathers of the church based their writings. One is, no, is not so much amazed at the large number of books in the New Testament as one is at the small number of them in view of the abundance of the religious literature in the early church. Luke hinted at the numerous Gospels that were in circulation in the day, when he took pen in hand to give his spirit-inspired account of the life of Christ, Luke chapter 1, verse 1. The writings of the Fathers did much to, to fill in the gaps in historical knowledge between the New Testament period and the latter part of the 4th century. The leading men of the church, by pen as well as by voice, formulated apologetic and polemic literature as they faced external per persecution and internal heresy. Creeds were formed to give accurate statements of faith, hence the fathers are the, of tremendous value in the study of the, of the development of the Christian life and thought in this period. This literature is far from dull, and the reading of it will repay the student with inspiration as well as, no, as with knowledge. The writers quote and use the language of Scripture. The title, quote, Father of the Church, quote, has its origin in the use of the title, quote, unquote, Father, which was given to bishops, especially in the West, to express affectionate loyalty. It was increasingly used by the 3rd century on to, this, on to describe the Orthodox champions of the Church and exponents of its faith. These men were usually bishops. Patrology, or patristics, patristics, is the name of the study of the life and works of these men, most of whom lived in the period between the end of the Apostolic Age and the Council of Chalcedon in 451. The diagram on page 74 will give some indication of who they were, their period, their major, their major works, and the most important characteristics of their writings. There is now reasonable assurance that the writings of the New Testament were completed just before the end of the first century after Christ. Men who knew the apostles and the apostolic doctrine continued the task of writing Christian literature. These men are known as the apostolic fathers. Most of their literary works were produced between 95 and 105 AD. Excuse me, 150 AD. Certain well-defined characteristics appear in their writings. Their utterances are informal, 
simple statements of sincere faith and piety, and showed little evidence of the philosophical training in pagan philosophy that one notices in the writings of Origen of Clement or Clement of Alexandria. The Apostolic Fathers had a great reverence for the Old Testament, and they leaned heavily on it for the support of their ideas. For this reason, one notes in some cases in an almost excessive use of typological interpretation. Christianity is declared to be the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies and types. Christianity was considered distinct from Judaism. Doctrine, ethics, and obedience to church leaders were emphasized. These men were also acquainted with the literary forms of the New Testament and used them as models for their work. Pastoral and practical edification of the church stands out above all else as the major objective of their writings. Roman numeral 1. Epistolary Literature. Subheading A. Clement of Rome. Circa 30 to 100. About the year 95, a serious disturbance occurred in the church at Corinth. A little later, Clement, the leading elder at the church in Rome, wrote his first epistle to the Corinthian church to urge the Christians who were in revolt against the elders to end their disturbance and to be in subjection to these elders. Chapter 1, verse 1, chapter 14, verses 1 through 2, and verse 40, chapter 46, and chapter 47, verses 3 through 6. <clears throat> Pardon me, this epistle has been assigned a prominent place among the writings of the Apostolic Fathers in recent times because it is the earliest Christian writing apart from the book of the New Testaments. Uh, excuse me, apart from the books of the New Testament. After an introduction in which he called to their remembrance the fine spirit of their church in former times, chapters 1 through 3, Clement launched into a series of exhortations concerning such Christian virtues as love, penitence, and humility in order to inspire obedience to his later, his later admonitions. These exhortations, based on the citation of numerous examples from the Old Testament, are divided by a short parenthesis, chapter 24 through 26, concerning the certainty of future resurrection. It is interesting to note that Clement used the pagan story of the phoenix in chapter 25 as an illustration of the resurrection. More direct attention is given to the troubles at Corinth in chapters 39 through 59 verse 2. The idea of apostolic succession appears in chapters 42 through 44 and centers around the fact that the elders and deacons were provided for by the apostles who in turn were sent out by Christ and Christ was sent out by the Father. Clement then urged obedience to these democratically appointed leaders in 44.3. This section is followed by a long prayer in 59.3 through chapter 61 in which his intense desire for the unity of the church is clear. A final exhortation to unity in chapter 62 through 65 concludes the work. This letter is valuable for its information concerning the ex exalted position of the bishops and their, or elders in the church at the end of the first century. Obedience to the bishop is to be the practical guarantee of Christian unity. Clergy are separated from laity, 40 through 5, uh, chapter 40, verse 5. Clement's letter is also interesting because of its profuse quotations, about 150 from the Old Testament. In addition, it contains a widely quoted reference to Paul's career in chapter 5, verses 5 through 7. The theory of the two imprisonments at Rome and a period of release in the interim is built mainly on this reference 
Christ's blood is said to be the means of salvation. Subheading B, Ignatius. Another apostolic father is Ignatius, bishop of Antioch in Syria, who was arrested by the authorities because of his Christian testimony and sent to Rome to be killed by beasts in the imperial games. He was allowed to have visitors from the churches of the towns along the way, and before his martyrdom he addressed letters of thanks to these churches for their kindness to him. The letter to the Romans is primarily a plea that they should make no efforts to save him from his martyrdom in Rome. Ignatius welcomed his coming martyrdom and sought to prevent any action that might hinder him from becoming, quote, pure bread of Christ's, end quote, by the grinding of the teeth of the beasts, chapters 2 and 4. These seven leaders, excuse me, these seven letters must have been written ten, must have been written about, a hun, about 110 A.D., Although the authenticity of some of the letters in, is in question, those accepted make his teaching clear. In his letters, Ignatius, Ignatius sought to warn the churches he had visited on the way to Rome about the heresies that threatened the peace and unity of these churches. He opposed Gnostic and Docetic tendencies. The Docetists sought to keep Christ a purely keep Christ a purely spiritual being, free of any contamination by a material body, and this led them to deny the reality of Christ's material body, and to state that only a phantom suffered on the cross, Epistle to Smyrna, chapter 1. Ignatius insisted on the revelation of Christ in the flesh as an antidote to this false teaching, Epistle to Smyrna, chapter 1, and the Trillians, chapters 9 through 10. This early church father also lays great emphasis on subjection to the, to the bishop as the way to achieve unity and to avoid the growth of heresy. There is considerable evidence in, the, in his letters that by this time one of the elders in the church, in each church, had become a monarchical bishop to whom fellow elders were obedient. Ignatius com compared obedience to the elders to the bishop with the accord of the strings of a harp, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, and urged all Christians to obey the monarchical bishop and the elders, chapter 20, verse 2. He was the first to place the office of bishop in contrast with the office of the presbyter, and to subordinate the presbyters or elders to the monarchical bishop and the members of the church to both. The hierarchy, hierarchy of authority in the church is, according to him, bishop, presbyter, and deacon. However, Ignatius did not exalt the bishop of Rome as superior to other bishops, even though he was the first to use the word Catholic, Smyrna, chapter 8. The only superiority is that the bishop to the presbyters within each church. Ignatius believed that without this threefold order, there is no church. Subheading C, Polycarp, circa 69 through circa 155 or 160. Polycarp, the writer of the letter to the Philippians that is reminiscent of Paul's letter to, the, to that church, had special opportunities to know the mind of the disciples because he had been a disciple of John. 
Bishop of Smyrna, for many years Polycarp was martyred by being burned at the stake. During his trial before the Roman proconsul, he said that he could not speak evil of Christ, whom he had served eighty-six years, and who had never done him wrong. Polycarp wrote his letter in 110 in answer to one of the Philippians. In his letter, Polycarp did not exercise much originality, for he quoted often, directly or and indirectly, from the Old and New Testaments, and gave much information that he had derived from the apostles, especially John. He was, however, a valuable second-century witness to the life and belief of the early church. He exhorted the Philippians to virtuous, living, good works, and steadfastness even to death, if necessary, because they had been saved by faith in Christ. About 60 New Testament quotations, of which 34 are from Paul's writings, show Polycarp's acquaintance with Paul's epistles, epistle to the Philippians, and other epistles, as well as with the other writings of the New Testament. Polycarp was not interested in church policy, as Ignatius was, but was interested in strengthening the practical daily life of Christians. Subheading D. The Epistle of Barnabas. This letter is often known as Pseudo-Barnabas Barnabas, because it was evidently written by someone other than the Barnabas of the New Testament. Evidence within the epistle itself would confirm this view, although many of the fathers of the church associated it with Barnabas of the New Testament. It is believed that the letter was written about 130 by some Christian from Alexandria. The letter was intended to help converts from paganism whom some Jewish Christians were trying to persuade that the law of Moses should be observed because it was still, so they thought, in force. The writer disposed of this claim in the first 17 chapters by showing that the life and death of Christ are completely adequate for salvation and that Christians are not bound to observe the law. The Mosaic Covenant has ended with the death of Christ. The last four chapters present present the contrast between two ways of life, the way of light and the way of the black one. The reader is urged to follow this, the first way of life. These two ways are reminiscent of the two ways of the didache, with which they probably had a close relationship. <clears throat> the writer of this letter used Old Testament typology, 119 quotations, to the point that it becomes allegory. He allegorized the 318 servants of Abraham in chapter 9, verse 9, as a reference to Christ's death on the cross on the basis that the Greek letter for 300 is cross-shaped and the Greek numerals for 18 are the first two letters of the name of Jesus. <clears throat> the writer was very proud of this unique interpretation, chapter 9, verse 9, of Genesis 14, 14. He, cons- he constantly went beyond the legitimate typology to allegory in order to de- derive the meaning he wanted from the Old Testament scriptures. This practice derived from Phil- Philo of Alexandria, who sought to reconcile Greek philosophy in the Old Testament by it, was later developed into an organized method of interpretation by Origen. It has done much harm to sound interpretation of the Bible. Subheading E, the Epistle of Diagnotes. The tutor of Marcus Aurelius, whose name was Diagnotius, <coughs> pardon me, may be the man to whom this letter was written. By some anonymous writer in the late 2nd or early 3rd century, it is ranked among the writings of the Apostolic Fathers only by custom, because its nature is apologetic, and it could, be well, it could well be considered one of the apologetic writings. The writer presented a, a rational defense of Christianity 
by showing the folly of idolatry in chapters 1 and 2. The inadequacy of Judaism, chapter 3 and 4, the superiority of Christianity in its beliefs, the character it builds, and the benefit it offers to the convert, chapters 5 through 12, he also likened to the role of Christians in the world, so that the soul in the body in a series of interesting comparisons, chapter 6. Subheading F, the second epistle of Clement to the Corinthians. This work is usually considered with the writings of the Apostolic Fathers, though it is not a letter but a sermon or homily, chapter 19, verse 1, and was not written by Clement, it was written about 150. The writer was interested in a sound view of Christ, a belief in the resurrection of the body, and purity of life on the part of the Christian, after primarily after preliminary assertion of the utility of salvation in chapters 1 through 4, he urged the Christian to enter the conflict against the world, chapters 5 through 7, by practicing Christian virtues, chapter 8 through 17, and working out the salvation that has become his through Christ, chapter 18 through 20. The letter is an interesting illustration of the content of preaching during the second century. Subheading G, Papias, circa 60 through circa 130. The interpretations of the sayings of the Lord was written about the middle of the second century by Papias, the bishop of Heropolis in Phrygia. In order to record the information that he had received from older Christians who had known the apostles, it is possible that Papias had been a disciple of John. The document deals with the life and words of Christ. Although it, was, it has disappeared, fragments of it are available in the writings of Eusebius and Irenaeus. The fragment preserved by Irenaeus' writings gives clear evidence of Papias' strong millennial views. The section preserved by Eusebius throws interesting light on the origin, origin of the Gospels. He stated that Mark was the interpreter of Peter and that Matthew wrote his work in the Hebrew language. These little excerpts are tantalizing to the student who realizes the light that the complete work of Papias would throw on the beliefs, life, and literature of the New Testament. Roman numeral 2. Apocalyptic literature. The Shepherd of Hermas, modeled after the Book of Revelation, was probably written about 150 by Hermas, who was considered by the writer of the Moratorian Canon to be the brother of Pius, the Bishop of Rome, between 140 and 155. The author's use of vision and allegory reminds one of John Bunyan's work, but unfortunately Hermas had little of the ability that the Purit that, that Puritan writer had. Although the work is written in the form of a revelation abounding in symbols and visions, its aim is both moral and practical. The writer had been the slave of Rhoda, a Christian woman of Rome. She had freed him, and he had become a rich businessman. But in the process, he had neglected his own family, and his family consequently fell into vile sin. He and his wife repented and confessed their sin, but his children turned against the faith. Then he lost all his possessions. Out of this experience came this work which is designed to call sinners to repentance. Repentance and holy living are the keynotes of the work. Mandate 4. The messages of the work are given to Hermes, 
Hermas, by a woman and an angel. The first section consists of five visions that emphasize the need for repentance and symbols. This is followed by twelve mandates or commandments depicting the code of ethics that the repentant one should follow in order to be pleasing to God. The final section is made up of ten similitudes or parables in which the main theme is the significance of repentance in life. The writer of The Shepherd is much concerned with the individual in relation to the Christian society, the church. Roman numeral three. The little book, the Didacti, the di, the Didac, Didaci. Forgive me for mispronouncing that. We should be well familiar with that as Christians. The teaching through the twelve apostles to the nations. Catechetical. Catechetical. Catechetical literature. Tongue twister came to the light in the year 1873 when a man named Brynoeus Philotheus discovered it in an ecclesiastical library in Constantinople. Say that ten times fast. He published it in 1883. This manual of church instruction was most likely composed before the middle of the second century in the form in which it has Come down to us. However, many contend for a date at the end of the first century because of the resemblance of much in it to the practices of the New Testament. Even the casual reader can pick out the clearly defined four parts of the work. The first section, which closely resembles the two ways of life in the pseudo Barnabas, consists of a discussion of the ways of life and death, chapters 1 through 6. And here the ethical action consist, consistent with a Christian life is set forth in contrast with the deeds of those who follow the way of death. The writer then discusses such liturgical problems as baptism, fasting, and the communion, chapter 7 through 10. Instruction on how to distinguish false prophets from true, how to, def- how to find worthy officials and disi- disciplinary matters forms the burden of the third section in chapters 11 through 15. The document Riley points out the false prophet as one who seeks food and lodging without giving anything in return to the church in the form of spiritual inspiration. The need for a watchful and consistent life in view of the coming of the Lord is the burden of the last chapter. This discussion should make clear the importance of the Didache as a picture I think it's Didache, as a picture of life in the early church between 95 and 150. The diligent reader of the literature that has been discussed will find much reward in the way of knowledge and inspiration. It seems somewhat a a pity that these writings of edification should have been neglected by the church throughout the ages. End chapter 5. Please forgive me for the mispronunciation mispronunciation of Didache or Didache. I'm going to have to look that up and make sure that I can give a proper uh, pronunciation in the future. 